Welcome to Searching for the Question Live. My name is David Orban, and I am very glad to have all of you uh, following the show. Uh, we are streaming on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter, on Twitch, and uh, in any of the platforms, you are more than welcome to send your questions, your comments. I will be able to uh, see them, collect them, filter them, and answer them to their, together with, uh, with my guest. Um, you are also, of course, uh, very kindly invited to subscribe uh, to the YouTube channel uh, so that you can be also alerted uh, about our future um, episodes, uh, as well as um, you can actually uh, vote uh, on uh, future guests. Uh, you can also join our Discord uh, community to continue the conversations. Uh, and uh, if you find uh, this uh, uh, series valuable, uh, you can become a supporter uh, on uh, Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash David Orban. Today's guest is uh, Kevin Kelly. I am very excited to have him. Uh, Kevin is the founding executive director of uh, Wired magazine, uh, a, a, a real guiding light uh, for now uh, decades about uh, digital culture and uh, uh, what uh, technology erupting and uh, disrupting means uh, for uh, all our lives. He's also uh, a writer, uh, a photographer, a conservationist, uh, and um, an eager uh, observer uh, of uh, culture, especially Asian culture, uh, through his uh, travels. Uh, we will be covering uh, many of these topics, uh, and uh, I am sure it will be fascinating. So, uh, Kevin, very welcome to Searching for the Question Live. I am so delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, let's start from uh, the beginning. Uh, how did you believe you became what you are? <laughs> what was the journey? Uh, I, I would say, like most people who have achieved anything, it was completely unplanned, um, with lots of detours, um, meanders, um, side track, double backtracks. So um, I certainly did not ever intend to do what I'm doing. In fact, I might have even kind of worked against trying to do that because it was very somewhat similar to what my dad did and I had no desire to do what he was doing. Um, but uh, I would say that um, whatever I am doing right now, um, I'm always rethinking. I'm now 68 and a half years old, and so I'm wondering what I might do when I grow up. That's right. And and uh, when when I think about uh, my biological age, uh, uh, it is it is starting to feel weird uh, because mentally I never feel more than 16 or 17. Um, this kind of um disconnect uh, i think is precious and and needs to be cultivated in 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 many ways um do you feel that uh, you have the kind of neotenic qualities uh, curiosity disrespect for authority um uh, uh, risk taking 
um, these are childlike features that uh, remain in a lot of people. I do. I, I risk is a kind of a maybe a nuanced one because I have always been a very cautious person in general. I don't like to go fast in terms of speed. I um, shy away from obviously dangerous um, occupations or even sports. But at the same time, I have made choices where they were kind of a gamble in the sense that it was high uncertainty. So I'm kind of comfortable with high uncertainty with certain conditions. Um, one is that, that no physical harm can come to me. Um, but uh, the, the, in, the current, in terms of lifestyle career, I have always been a, um, at ease with high uncertainty because I did something when I was young that I thought was very important, which was I um, lived with very, very, very little. And I did that in order to rehearse what living with very little would look like so they would not be afraid of it. You mean so, you did that on purpose? Yes, right. So so I had owned almost nothing. I was living in villages, say in Nepal, sleeping on the floor. Um, so so I had I was I had the most minimal sustenance, daba, you know, rice and lentils, a floor to sleep on, owning nothing. And later on, I went on to build my own house, not in Nepal, but in New York State. And I did that in order to see how little I could live on, knowing that then if I ever took a risk, I wouldn't be afraid of it failing because I would know that I could be happy, so to speak, content, maybe not happy, but I could be content with very, very little. So that did not sway me that so, so that notion of like well what if i lost everything well fine because i don't need very much to be content and and how old were you at the time i was 21 maybe 2021 and and um, what inspired you to carry out that experiment henry david thoreau okay henry david thoreau was an american transcendentalist who wrote a book called walden which was about his years living on the side of Walden Pond in Massachusetts, where he built his own house. And he kind of preached this idea of self-reliance. And that was, he was my hero in high school. I really thought that um, what he was doing was really cool. I, uh, and so he's very influential with me. Um, years later, as an adult, I went back to reread Walden and I could barely read it because he was so full of himself. He was such, you know, it turns out that he, you know, he would go home on weekends and have his mother do his laundry and stuff. So there was a lot more there than what first appeared. And I didn't really see that when I was young. But when I was um, younger, this was a very influential book. And it's more than just about his um, um, workaday life. It was more about the connecting with nature and being aware. So he's a, he's a pivotal figure in the kind of the environmental movement. And this book is still worth reading, even if you don't plan to live a simple life, just for his, um, his transcendent um, view. But that was where they got the idea from. And um, um, at the time, you had 
a value system that um, today would be already or, or today would be uh, looked at as as a conver- conservationist and whether you you called it that way uh, or or um, not i think you, i had a view that might be called today a hippie okay so um this was at the end of the 60s through the 60s and like a lot of young people i was very influenced by the hippies and this idea of um um kind of uh hippies ideas of maybe kind of rebooting or restarting or kind of do your own thing maybe that's the um term so i was very influenced by the whole earth catalog stuart brand's whole earth catalog which came out in the late at the end of the 60s and that along with walden was a kind of a do-it-yourself ethos like okay um, you are going to invent your life. You can inv- can invent your life. Um, you We are giving you permission to invent your life. And that's the assignment that I took from the catalogs and hippies was, okay, I'm not going to work for the man. I don't want to work for a big company. I'm going to do everything I can not to work for a corporation. I'm going to set out on my own and find my own path. And that was Thoreau, and that was a little bit of the hippies, and that was the whole earth catalog. And 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 there is uh, uh, a, a wonderful thread that connects uh, that kind of um, individual uh, uh, can-do attitude all through the personal computer revolution. And uh, I may remember the the name of the book that actually puts it in this um, uh, in this frame. I mean, the one by it, Ted Nelson. Um, well, uh, Ted Nelson's uh, uh, machines. The, oh, those are those are wonderful and totally relevant to uh-huh. uh, to this. Uh, but I am thinking of another one. Um, it, it it will come to us. But the question is: um, Is that kind of hippie ethos and hippie philosophy that aimed to be? quite revolutionary in terms of social impact. Um, is that something that delivered on its aims or, or, or it didn't? And if it did not, as I think it didn't, why? why, why, why? I, well, I think it did um, deliver it. Um, the, out of the kind of hippie Medellu in Silicon Valley, we had this idea of the personal computer. We call it the PC, personal computer. That's a very American individualistic idea of computation was that you're going to have your own personal computer. And then, you know, Nicholas Nager Pani talked about the daily me, when a new service that's going to curate specifically news for you, the daily me. So we have a very, very, we had a very, very individualistic reign through Silicon Valley. And I think as the aim of the hippies, that worked. But I think what didn't work was that that's not sufficient. That's what I would say inadequate. It doesn't take into account the social nature of what computation should be, the the, the social nature of what a society should be. So it certainly served up, I think, the original dream even though there were communes, it was still a very, very individual, individually oriented um, 
philosophy or worldview, do your own thing. So yes, we were able to do our own thing. And with the personal computer, we could do our own thing. But I think we're kind of now realizing the limits to do your own thing. And what we want to, to move to is more of a collective um, view of the world. And that's a word with some luggage on it, some, some baggage, um, the collective social aspect of it. But I think what we're moving to in general is a more social view of the work that we need to do. And uh, uh, when did you meet and I believe uh, fell in love with the technology? So the hippies were somewhat allergic to, to technology. There was, um, we eventually kind of developed a term appropriate technology, which was saying that there some technologies were appropriate and others weren't. The appropriate ones were kind of simple hand tools and simple things that maybe you could repair yourself. The inappropriate ones was very large industrial scale, large system scale things. And um, I kind of, and this is a little bit of David Thoreau coming back to Walden, I kind of sided with this idea of trying to keep technology at an arm's length and kind of be a little bit Amish in adopting only hand tools or things that were simple, like a bicycle. So have a bicycle, but not a car. Um, use hand tools, keep things to a minimum. And that was my bias. I changed, be I began to change my mind about um, technology as a whole. When I decided to, uh, then I needed, I needed some kind of a career or job or livelihood. And when I was in my 30s, and I decided to try to do a, a business selling travel, budget travel books by mail, and I needed a, a computer to do the typesetting. And the computer itself, as I often will remark, did not really change very much. The standalone PC accelerated things like you could type faster with a word processor. The spreadsheet was a complete marvel that really changed the world from the very, very beginning. But it wasn't really enough to revolutionize our society. The entire error of the digital realm came when we married the computer to the telephone when we turned it into a communication device that's where the real work began the real grand revolution and so when i plugged my little apple 2e into with a modem and then discovered that there was another world emerging inside the modem it felt for the first time that there was something there that was organic, that it was human scale, that it was somehow almost biological in a way that I had never felt from technology before. And so I fell full into the emerging online world, which to me felt like uh, Amish barn raising. And with that, as that came, as I became more comfortable with that, I began to review, to look at technology with different eye from a different perspective. And then going to the Artificial Life Conference at Los Alamos, where they were talking, I began to see that, oh, technology is becoming almost as complicated as biology. In fact, there's hardly any difference between 
complex biological systems and complex mechanical systems. There really are two phases of the same thing. That was my first book. And so I began to reevaluate and embrace technology, seeing it more as a the seventh kingdom of life, as, as another kingdom of life based on silicon that um, uh, was maybe more powerful, more human scale, more on the net good than I had imagined before. Um, and uh, uh, this evolving uh, view of technology uh, that uh, began in the, at, at the beginning of the 80s when personal computers not only were these disconnected uh, pieces for hobbyists, uh, but they started to interconnect uh, and open new worlds uh, is, I would believe, uh, still uh, continuing. Um, how um, how did your view of, of technology evolve uh, uh, over the course of the next uh, decades? Well, um... ha have there been uh, uh, later further epiphanies yes yes um as um you know as as i sort of began to spend more time looking at technology and then trying to think about where it was going um i eventually felt that there was uh, the technology was really peculiar because there was no theory of technology we have a theory of biology it's called evolution that kind of ties all the wonders of, of the natural world together because before darwin there was this sort of one organism after another there was this endless parade of organisms there was no understanding of how they were connected together well technology we have almost the same thing there's just one invention after another there was no unifying idea of how all these are connected what was driving what's the commonality so i began to want to write about to help me understand what was the theory of technology and I got a contract to do a book. That's what books are for me. Books are ways to, to get paid to think about things, to, to research things that I want to know about. And I thought that I was just going to interview all the people who had theories about technology and that would be it. But it turned out there weren't any. There weren't really any plausible, coherent. And I began to kind of try to work on a proto-theory of technology. And this was the book, What Technology Wants. And I... In that process, I came up with a proto-theory, which is basically an extension of, the theory is that technology is an extension and acceleration of life itself, and that the things that govern directions that evolution have are the same directions that technology has, so that basically what technology wants is what evolution wants. But in that process, something weird happened to myself that changed my view, and that was I became what is called a technological determinist. I came to the conclusion that the sequence of technologies are kind of predetermined. That once you discover electrons in a wire and switches and stuff uh, and transistors, you will have the internet. The internet was sort of inevitable given the, enough time. Once you just have radio waves, we discover them, radios will be inevitable. 
And so um, that idea that simultaneous independent rediscovery of things happening at the same time is the norm for technology that there are no hero inventors that these every idea every new invention is a network a whole ecosystem of other related ideas that um that changed how i thought about um technology that 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 we don't really have a choice in some senses of what comes but we have tremendous choice in the character of what is coming so as you grow up you don't have a choice about whether you're a teenager or not that's a developmental progression but you have a lot of choice about what kind of teenager you're going to be and so when the internet came it was going to come that was inevitable but we have a tremendous amount of choice in the character of the internet whether it was centralized or decentralized whether it was commercial or nonprofit whether it was national or international those are the characters and they make a huge difference to us and i would say the same thing about anything else coming along ai is inevitable we can't stop it it's going to come as long as we are making things we're going to make more and more ai but we have a tremendous amount of choice in the character of it. What, how is it regulated? Who regulates it? How do we deal with it? How is it financed? So those are choices that we have and they make a huge difference, but AI is going to come. Um, the, uh, the, the, the line of thought uh, just leads me to, to a thousand questions, and, and I don't know whether I have... This is horror, right? This is, that's the name of the show. <laughs> and, 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 and I don't know whether I will have uh, the, the opportunity to ask uh, maybe 10, but uh, I will try and, 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 and choose them carefully so that they originate uh, uh, interest uh, in you uh, mm -hmm. as well as in, in our viewers. Uh, Emiliano is sending... Uh, good vibes and uh, Timur is uh, liking it. Um, one of our rituals here is uh, to connect uh, in a little bit of uh, um, digital slash physical context uh, where I am, uh, because I am uh, in, uh, in Bergamo, which uh, is uh, in the north of uh, Italy near Milan. Here you can see the Alps, uh, very good skiing. And uh, if we zoom out uh, a little bit, uh, there will be Lake uh, Como of uh, Star Wars uh, fame, if nothing <laughs> else. And, uh, and then a uh, wonderful uh, uh, seaside uh, places. Uh, and uh, you are in Pacifica. Right. Which is uh, right on the other side of this uh, incredible planet. Yeah. Do you like to go down to the ocean and uh, oh, yeah. look at the waves? Yeah, almost every day. Um, take a walk there along the cliffs. So, I mean, th this is curious because in our backyard, we have a national park where all that green is. And yet within 17 minutes, I can be parked downtown San Francisco at the wired offices. And we have mount mountain lion in our backyard. Wow. <laughs> We have um, bobcats and coyote in our backyard, and yet we're within sight of 
um, downtown San Francisco. Yeah, which is which is uh, right Remarkable. right yeah. here. Um, so how uh, how did uh, how 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 was Wired born? How did it come about? Yeah. So Wired was the brainchild of uh, its two parents, Louis Rosetto, Jay Metcalf, who were scheming in Amsterdam um, because they were running a magazine for someone else. And the magazine was about language translation, uh, machine language translation. So, And it was an industry magazine. And every issue, they kept making it broader and broader, uh, more about wired like things until the owner of the um magazine said you have to stop this you know it's like uh, you're, you're not putting out the magazine that i need so so they had an idea to put out a broader magazine they call it the least boring computer magazine and um they wanted to expand that and they came to see me because i was a fan of the first magazine uh, what they were trying to do and i said you know Okay, you can make a magazine, but if you're going to make this magazine about tech, it has to be in San Francisco. It can't be in Amsterdam. So they actually did move to San Francisco to start a magazine, and we got them started on The Well, which was this embryonic online community to have a very, from the very beginning, to have a digital presence in, in it. And um, they went to work um, with two designer, a designer couple, and they came up with a prototype. And they came to show me the prototype. And I was editing another magazine at the time. I was editing Whole Earth and I was writing a book. Um, and they said, do you have any editors you could recommend? And I looked at the, um, the, the, the prototype. And I had already tried to start a, a digital magazine. Um, I was trying out this idea of doing one called Signal. And it was about ideas and it was about the tools. And... Um, Lewis and Jane's brilliant idea was to make it about the people behind the tools. And that's what the Wired was. It was about the people making the revolution. And it was very people-oriented, and that was the genius of it. And I saw the prototype, and I said, ah, this is going to work. I'll volunteer to edit the first couple issues because I still have a, magaz I have a book to finish and a magazine to go back to. Um, but it turned out the Wired was just too much fun, so I, so I never went back. Um, so the origins of it was this couple who um, saw in it that the world was going to need an explanation for this coming thing, this coming revolution. And uh, the, the main business argument that they made, which is also genius, and I would not have made it, was that they realized that the advertisers would want to connect with these people who were reading it and the people who were reading, who, who were making, the people in Silicon Valley who were making Silicon Valley were not reading other magazines. They weren't watching TV. They weren't reading Time you, you, mean, you mean they were not reading Mondo 2000? Well, they might have been reading some Mondo. Um, <laughs> so so the, the, the pitch was we could reach the nerds. We could reach Silicon Valley. We being wired, we could read Silicon Valley and get their attention. And that was the proposition for the financing to make it glossy in color. And um, that was all Lewis and Jane's doing. And so um, 
So, so the idea was we were going to, Wired was going to explain, and, and, and here's what sold me on this. Here's the one thing that sold me. Besides seeing the, the, the prototype, Lewis said, I want to make a magazine that feels as if it has been mailed from the future. And that was that was when I said, "Okay, sign me up." Well, uh, and it was uh, was for many years. Uh, it the was last page. It was, and what we did was, um, we didn't talk down to the audience. Instead of having to explain everything, like you know, the the, the kind of standard advice for USA Today or some other like Time magazine is that you know. 11th grader has to understand it or seventh grader or whatever it is, or your grandma. We didn't, we didn't, we, we, we talked up to people. We tried to lift them up and we used language that we were using and wanted them to come along. And so there was, we were very much, we were the audience. And I told this to the writers again and again, you're not writing from your grandmother. You're not writing for your friend. You're writing for me. And I have seen a lot and I am totally bored. Amaze me. Okay, tell me something amazing. Um, and so that's, you know, that's how Wired was born, was we were talking to ourselves and the people around us trying to say, here's what's coming. And it was a hard sell because people really did not believe in the internet in the beginning. They did not believe that it was going to be this central thing. They believed that it was teenage boys in the basement. It was going to be marginal. It was going to be like CB radio they really did not see how important, and we saw it. And we were trying to say, no, 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 you don't understand. This is big. People will be buying things on the internet, believe me. <laughs> and, well, that was true in the 90s, but uh, it is amazing how in places that are less, you know, um, at least paying attention to technology because of the stock market, for example, right? Uh, in in, no, the, in the US, even if you are not uh, uh, in love with technology, you will follow it because you can make money. But, oh, in, yeah. many places, sure. yeah. but in many places, that kind of uh, uh, alarm bell is, is not as uh, uh, audible. Uh, and whether you are an individual or in a business, up to 2020, there were people who were crossing their fingers and waiting for the Fed to, to, to start fading away, for the computers not to matter anymore. And this is demonstrated by how many emails still have the footer. Think about the environment. Do <laughs> not print this message. <laughs> so my hypothesis uh -huh. is that if uh, we can find the Google engineers they will notice uh, a diminishing of this footer this year because people mm. closed in their homes, if they want to print the dawn messages, they are using their own paper and their own ink. And they will realize maybe they don't need to print it anymore. And the businesses start to realize that they can eliminate that stupid footer. And, and if the people are honest enough, they will go one step further and say, I am so glad that the internet exists, that video conferencing mm -hmm. exists, because I realize that I can do my job, I can talk to people, I can be connected, even while living this entire year in my spaceship 
in, in, in my room, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so I hope that a lot of people realize that. And, mm -hmm. and Wired, you know, here you, 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 you go, um, a guy in Italy telling you that Wired for him represented um, like, like uh, a, a new, uh, a, a, the realization that he wasn't alone. That there were people who who were thinking like him, right, right. and and that uh, gave him a great uh, inspiration. And that was a very common uh, comment or um, remark in the early days of Wired. Uh, and part of what Wired did was alert to people that there were other people who thought like they did. And that was um, this idea of kind of building an identity. So there were people who, you know, didn't identify as nerds or geeks or Silicon Valley. This was part of what Wire did, was make that an identity. And and Italy, by the way, is one of the only two countries, as far as I know, that have their own local Wired editions. One is right. the UK. Okay, understandable. And the other, totally weird. Not only Italy has Wired, uh, but it survived kind of a long time. Right, Maybe right, now right. it's uh, ten years uh, running. So sure. that uh, that is unexpected. Yeah, yeah, it is. It was one of the first to to also have an, an addition besides UK. It was very early. Yeah, and yeah. that might have been because some of the aspects of Wire was a very designy. It, it was it, it also pioneered design and color and things, which of course Milano and other. Uh, 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 there is uh, there is another local uh, magazine uh, 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 called uh, uh, Digitalic um, that uh, um, is is very much uh, design oriented as well. T technology, but the way that it, for example, every cover has a different kind of paper. And then in the magazine, they talk about the paper as well and why they, they chose it. So I remember 10 years ago, maybe or so, uh, calling up uh, the, the the publisher and saying, hey, but are you kind of copying Wired? And, and they said, oh, I'm so proud that you are saying that <laughs> because we are absolutely in love with Wired. And, and uh, the fact that you as a reader recognize it uh, makes me happy, he said. So <laughs> there you go. You had publishing, right, right. Uh, uh, you know, uh, fans uh, as as well. Are, so, are they still going? Is Digitalic still going? Um, I um, I hope so. And uh, and if uh, either one of our uh, viewers or the publisher uh, himself is is following, uh, they are. Welcome to chime in and confirm. Uh, I would guess uh, uh, they are. the The website is is alive, okay, uh, for sure. Well, they and may the, they may only be on the web now. Which is sort of the, which so is the, the the destiny of even Wired, I think, in a few years is to not be on paper anymore, to be wholly online. So that's that that is the destiny for most magazines. Uh, you and I and many others. Uh, love paper books, uh, but uh, it is um, so much sure. a richer medium right. to be able to cross-reference, right. to be able to have uh, so many. Uh, my two-story uh, library. Wow. I have, I have yeah. books everywhere. Oops, you can't really see, but there's books there too. So, yes, I'm surrounded by two stories of books. 
and um beautiful yeah uh so um emiliano again uh, is asking uh, i i will summarize two of his questions in 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 one um on on one hand he's asking how is the future today or is the future as you look at it in in 20 years and uh is uh, what what is the future that is interesting today on one hand and sorry i lost his question the other question too many are popping up um and do you believe that in the future technology could change so that it is less uh in our face we need to talk about it less because it will kind of disappear it will just yeah. what the world is so um one at a time i'll answer the second question first i think that technologies succeed when they disappear from our awareness that we're when we're not aware that means the technology has succeeded and if you were wherever you are right now if you look around i would say 90% of the technology that surrounds you right at this moment is old and you're not even paying attention to it. it's concrete it's plumbing it's wiring in the walls there are little motors everywhere and um that's because it has been successful and i would say a lot of the technology that we're making today will become successful and become invisible it becomes something that we're not aware of and that has including things like ai most of ai today already is invisible and not something we're aware of and most of ai in the future will be completely invisible to us because it has been successful so um but there's always new technology and i like danny hellis's definition of new technology new technology is any technology that doesn't quite work yet so technology is technology is that which doesn't work it it's always the new stuff and there will while there is a constant mass of technology that become invisible there will be another whole layer of always new things that don't quite work right so we have to pay attention to them and um so that, that's forever forever now forward we will be newbies we will be dealing with new things we were having to learn new things and while the young millennials youth today they rub their hands and they say i'm a digital native well you're a digital native right this moment but in 20 years from now you're going to have to be learning the whole new interface and gesture interface for ar you'll be having to learn how to talk to an ai all over again you'll be a newbie so so we're not out of it we're always going to be learning new things and there's always be this disruptive aspect of technology forevermore so um so, so yeah so i think that it should be the state that we imagine in the future there's not this kind of um utopian harmony where things settle down and everybody is peaceful no 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 it's going to be going on forever um uh, rebecca is quoting david bowie uh who says that the internet is uh feels like an alien life form yeah and uh, and she's asking what are your views on recent advances in brain computer interfaces and uh, right. neuralink in particular which is going to help the disabled in the short time but in the long time uh, in the long term uh, uh elon musk sees uh 
one of the biggest challenges is our limited bandwidth mm -hmm. for absorbing information, being able to act on information, uh, given to the degree that we are exposed to it. Right, right. And so improving that with a better interface is what uh, Neuralink uh, wants to do. Right. So Neuralink, for those who may not be confused by it, is, is a way of interfacing with a computer directly from your brain in a non-invasive way. So the current experiments is you wear a cap. And the cap um, is uh, basically reading your brain and that you're then training your brain to send signals and interface with the computer. Maybe you can control the computer, maybe you can drive a car, or you can do all kinds of things. And so that's that's sort of the current immediate dream. And um, there's three or four companies who are working on this, and they're I would have to say they are further along than I thought they would be. I thought this was at least 50 to 100 years away, but it's probably 25 years away. And there are lab demonstrations right now. Elon Musk's Neuralink. There's a couple others. Mary Jo Epson um, is working with one called, I think, Ocean or Ripples. I can't remember. There's another new one that Brian Johnson has. Um, and I have not seen, or I should say, I have not tried on any of these myself. So I can only speak secondhand. But the way that they are working is that they, it turns out that your skull is actually transparent to near-infrared light. So they can send light from a diode, a laser, into you through your skull, into your brain. And the amount of photons that get in, actually, you're not any more than what you might get by walking in the sun. Because there's also near-infrared light coming from the sun that goes into your brain. So it's not really harmful. But what they can do is, because it's like a signal that they can measure, they can send the light down and have it bounce back up from neurons. And they can actually, it's a way of doing like an MRI of your brain in real time, very lightweight and fast and cheap. So right now, it's read only. It's only detecting what you're thinking or what you are um, trying to 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 to, nav to, to, to do um, and um, it's probably you know it's it's relatively work it works and, and on to, to the first approximation the technology will evolve pretty quickly as the resolution becomes finer as the 3d uh, the abilities of the brain that they can inspect increases and as we learned uh, how to how to interface with it, so I so so this as a commercial, I mean I think therapeutic there will be kind of early uh, uses, but in terms of like making it into your home or I think it's decades away before that is um, before it's evolved. And then there's the issue of how you can make it um, not just read but also to write to it. And there's some evidence that you could actually use the same kind of light to disturb the neurons, to, to, to fire them so that you can have a two-way interaction with them. Um, so that's the that's the dream. And, and, and I guess for me, the takeaway is I thought it was going to be a lot further away. And I feel that it's closer, but it's still not really decades away. So 
um, at, at the Singularity University and in other places, uh, exponentials is what you eat for breakfast. And uh, taking them for granted, uh, including the generation after generation um, uh, replacement that uh, uh, each S-curve disappears in the um, additional ones. Uh, that is why we have been able to deliver the self-fulfilling uh, prophecy of Moore's Law for 50 plus years because we are not stuck on a single technology as we design these exponentials. You have the luxury of actually thinking what um, uh, happens if you take the exponentials for granted. So I published uh, the Network Society Manifesto many years ago that uh, talks about decentralization as a natural consequence. And more recently, uh, I wrote about what I call uh, jolting technologies, where the rate of acceleration is increasing. And um, I you know, dared to tell Stanford University that they were wrong when uh, in their uh, report two years ago analyzing AI, they said, oh, we have two eras of AI, one that was under Moore's law doubling every two years, and now a new era where it is doubling every four months. Fantastic, but an approximation of uh, a double exponential because the new rate is not going to be constant. And I was proven right just a couple of weeks ago by uh, NVIDIA, uh, whose uh, CEO said they are now planning for AI doubling every two months. And just last week, uh, the chief architect of Intel said that all their ecosystem is working together in order to increase AI power thousandfold in four years. And, and, and uh, uh, Ray... Uh, actually felt the need of revising his um, symbolic uh, 2045, uh, um, uh, the singularity is here, um, calendar date. I don't know whether it is June 1st, uh, midday or, or whatever it is, to 2038. And, and, and just to remind everyone, that is not anything. The way that he defined it is that that is when you can buy uh, um, an intelligence equivalent to a human intelligence for $1,000, right? But that it does mean that much earlier than that, we will have uh, for more money or for a lot of money, both human or superhuman intelligence. And, and uh, you, you said that you see AI as inevitable, um, how do you see the coevolution of the human species uh, together with AI over the course of the next hundred years or the next thousand years? Yeah. So you you said a lot of things that I'd like to comment on. The the one the one caution that I would suggest about the exponential um, growth is that you can assume exponential growth, but that's often not sufficient. I was really blown away by virtual reality in the mid-1980s. I really thought it was just around the corner when Jerry Lanier, I mean, I had the experience of going in there. And it's been 25 years of exponential growth, and we basically still don't have it. So why not? We've had a million-fold increase in it. Why don't we have it? Well, I mean, 
so so what we've had is that we basically have the same quality of the experience that was available in 1980, which costs several million dollars to do. And now you can do it for a hundred dollars. So, so you often need more than just exponential increase to have things. And that's why even like Neuralinks, you could have it, you could even be accelerated, you could have double exponential, but that doesn't, is not sufficient because basically what I would say is a lot of these problems are multi-dimensional. They're not a single dimension. And this is my criticism of this idea of the singularity in intelligence. Intelligence is not a single dimension. I have to repeat this again and again. It is multi-dimensional. There are, there are many, many varieties of cognition. And putting it and saying, well, there's one dimension and we're just kind of increasing, exponentially increasing that one dimension is a myth. And, it's, and so what I really prefer to talk about is AIs, plural, because there's going to be many varieties of them. They're going to be doing many things. And there's no such thing as general intelligence. Oh, my gosh. Just like there's no general organism, right? There's every single one of these is specialized. And human intelligence, my gosh, is the most peculiar, weirdest kind of intelligence. When we map out human intelligence with all the universe, all the intelligences in the universe, we'll be out of the edge in the corner somewhere, just like we are on the edge of, of a galaxy. We're not at the center of anything. We are have a very peculiar intelligence that's really at the edge because it was evolved for our own situation on this planet. So, um, yes, there is exponential growth in many dimensions, but that's not sufficient for what we're looking for. Intelligence is very complicated. It's a complex thing. It's arrangements of many kinds of cognition. Um, and uh, that's true for our own intelligences. That's true for animal intelligences. There's many types. Animals are superior to humans in many kinds of cognition. And the whole purpose of this is that we're going to make AIs that don't think like humans. So easy to make a human in nine months, untrained labor, okay? We want to do this. What we want to do is to make other kinds of thinking. That is the, the main benefit is think different. To think different is the wealth of, generates the wealth of this new economy. So we want to think different. And the value of AIs is that they are not going to think like humans. I think the best metaphor for them is to imagine them as artificial aliens. And right? you, you, you mentioned uh, uh, evolution and how biology has been revolutionized by the, the Darwinian view uh, that was able to systematize it and that we needed uh, uh, the same kind of evolutionary view of, of technology uh, uh, that you at least uh, started with, uh, with what technology wants. Um, and of course, universal Darwinism as articulated by Richard Dawkins and then analyzed by Susan Blackmore with Dawkins yep. introducing uh, memes that are not images on the internet, but are the right. units of uh, culture that evolves, and Susan Blackmore uh, introducing uh, themes uh, uh, which are the units of technological evolution, are all yearning for uh, possibly a science fiction writer to give them better 
neologisms because these are so clunky, both of them. And I don't know whether it will be David Brain or 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 Vernor Vinci or or whoever else that comes up with something that we can actually take and and run with. Do you think that the rules of evolution are evolving? And if they yeah. do, is the kind of evolution that technologies uh, uh being uh, propelled by a different kind of evolution than not uh, for biology. So, 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 so you're you're right on because evolution itself has been evolving, and this was Dawkins' early insight that um, the evolvability of a system was one of the key factors because you wanted to have a system that was more evolvable, and so evolution itself has gone through and it continues to evolve because it invented things like sexual recombination um, that was a kind of you know social group kin selection these were all inventions in the evolution of evolution and the most recent invention in the evolution of evolution is the technium is technology which we can accelerate the creation of things that that evolution in the natural world could not get to right so basically what we can imagine is like if what evolution wants is to fill the universe with all possible ways of being and becoming, what we're doing on Earth and other planets with technology is we're accelerating the ability to invent new ways of doing things and new processes to get them done. So evolution, so, so we are part of the technium and part of this process of accelerating evolution by making another way of evolving. Okay. And so, and, and part of that process is the scientific method. And I think I was the first person to write a history of the scientific method because the scientific method itself has been evolving over time. Right? And, and, and certainly the communication tools that we have and the processes, uh, uh, open source, uh opening uh, lab uh, notes making uh, lab work uh, for example uh, robots uh, disrupting uh, the the post grad uh, workforce is a wonderful news because uh, even universities that can af afford uh, or couldn't before afford to pay uh, um, a lot of uh, right. post grads or 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 phd's uh can start replicating, uh, adapting right, experiments right. Uh, to the local needs and find uh, different solutions. Right. There's an ex a great example of, of the scientific method evolving, which is really how our evolution is evolving, is the publication of negative results. Yeah. So normally, until now, uh, you try an experiment. If it didn't work, you didn't mention it. But now what we realize is that those negative results are very, very valuable. And so if you publish negative results, you can accelerate what we know and how we know it. So that's just one tiny example of how the scientific method is um, going forward. Um, algorithmic proofs, um, computer simulations, simulating things and, and using them. Th these are all ingredients in the evolution of the scientific method, which is really uh, the acceleration and continuation of evolution itself. And, and, and uh, um, 
similarly to how uh, there are certain organisms that uh, may glimpse uh, other worlds, uh, like fish uh, being able to see beyond the, the, the water to right. the point where certain fish mm -hmm. flies uh, with their spitting uh, water goblets, we are glimpsing a different world. Uh, with, with AIs, for example, getting immediate access to their source code yeah. and, and analyzing it and, and saying, hey, I need to get uh, better or, or, or correct something, or different kinds of AIs having a mind meld because they realize that they need to very um, deeply join forces in order to uh, address uh, a challenge that they are seeing. Right. Are, so, we, so I, I, are we going to be able to go beyond that mere glimpsing of it? Um, predictions are very difficult, especially in the future. And I think um, uh, there is a sense of singularity being true in the sense that we are going to have difficulties seeing very far ahead. But um, um, we can get better at it. I think we can look at larger trends. Specifics are always unpredictable. Um, and getting better about looking ahead is one of the things that we want to get better at. And so um, I have really enjoyed this conversation. I need to jump off ship. Oh, okay. Um, well, I, 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 we, I, we've been a rocket headed into the future at a very fast speed. Um, it's been a pleasure to be with you on this journey. Um, but I do need to... Um, I, I am I am very happy to have had you uh, and uh, uh, please come back. I will reach out uh, whenever your next book is out, for example. Sure. And 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 thank you. I will keep going answering questions because we have a lot of questions from our audience, without putting words in your mouth, just my own thoughts for sure. them. And and Kevin, thank you very much for being here. You're it's a pleasure. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. So uh, that was an unexpected uh, departure, uh, but of course, uh, we are very happy to have had uh, Kevin here. There are some questions that I wanted to, uh, to address, and um, I don't know how much uh, you will accept my own um, elaboration of an answer, but there you go. So Cosimo is asking about tools and the evolution of the nature of tools. Now, um, there are some issues about uh, evolution that I a little bit disagree with, uh, with Kevin. Uh, when he was talking about uh, the uh, technological uh, determinism, I wanted to uh, pull up uh, another book uh, by, um, uh, by Stuart Kaufman that uh, talks about how there is no be-univocal function that can connect the starting conditions and the end results, meaning that, yes, definitely the starting conditions generated the end result, but if you look at the end result, there is no way that you can deduct what were the starting conditions that ended up generating it. So in this sense, uh, it is hard to look at anything and say, oh, I understand it. 
I can see why, for example, uh, the the scissor uh, is connected with a given type of um, screw in the middle. Or I look at the scissor and I deduct certain things about uh, the left or right-handedness uh, or the fact that uh, the, the, the creatures using the scissor have uh, five fingers or things like that. Now, tools are evolving for sure. Uh, not only uh, electronic and digital tools, but even mechanical tools, uh, the way that, uh, that we are using them. And I am not a very much uh, uh, user of, of tools like, uh, like uh, Kevin Kelly is, uh, whose book, uh, Cool Tools, uh, is, is, is wonderful and highly uh, recommended. Uh, he also has um, a, a website uh, dedicated to it. So go and check it out. Uh, definitely uh, the knowledge of tools in the mechanical world can be translated to think about how tools evolve uh, in other ways as well. Uh, another question that I was, uh, another actually series of questions that I was holding, and, and maybe uh, if and when Kevin comes back, uh, uh, we can discuss that, uh, is about China. Because uh, Kevin has uh, been traveling to uh, Asia, uh, documenting through wonderful photography, uh, disappearing uh, traditions uh, in uh, uh, Tibet, Mongolia, and China. And uh, you can go and look at uh, them on uh, his uh, Instagram account, Vanishing Asia. So one of the questions that came up uh, was from uh, uh, Pranjul, uh, who is wondering uh, whether we should be scared of Chinese growth and prosperity and if maybe China is the new world center. So uh, I don't know whether Pranjul uh, is in India or in the US uh, or, or elsewhere. Um, certainly the 20th century uh, was US centric. Um, definitely after World War II, but already uh, before, uh, a lot of uh, the, the world economy, world culture, um, uh, militarily, uh, a lot was defined by what the U.S. decided. And uh, uh, for some time, a large part of the world would follow uh, the Soviet Union, willingly or willingly and uh, and after the collapse of the soviet union a lot of people believed okay this is it now it is going to be uh, forever uh, the way that the western democracies organize uh, uh, their society and everyone in the world will adopt that the chinese um prosperity is definitely not something that should scare anyone. I believe it should be thrilling to understand 
that it is indeed possible to uh, pull out hundreds of millions of people from extreme poverty. And as we look at uh, other uh, large populations, we can be optimistic that it can be done. And actually, this time around, including China, it will be done with much fewer externalities. Renewable energy, for example, that uh, is still rapidly decreasing in price and improving in uh, availability, is going to be a huge source of uh, well-being. Because if you have energy plentiful available, you are able to desalinate water, to extract raw materials, to transport uh, products and produce, to create fertilizers, uh, to um, create shelters, uh, to um, um, use uh, uh, chemistry and molecular biology, everything. And you can do it both without being subjected to uh, increasing degrees of uh, um, political uh, dependence through energy supplies, which used to be the case with uh, uh, oil, and without depleting the environment. Now, is China going to aim for the kind of world domination that uh, the U.S. exercised over the course of the past hundred years? Historically, it wouldn't seem like it. Uh, China for three, four, five thousand years was its own country, um, or not even. <laughs> and, uh, and it had uh, opportunities, for example, 600 years ago to go ahead and discover Europe and then colonize Europe. And uh, China stopped uh, its explorations. Will it now be different? Will the already existing commercial um, agreements with Africa for ports, for railroads, for mines, uh, turn into leveraging that into political influence? We'll see. I don't think that uh, over the course of the next several decades, China will replace America by becoming something very similar to what America has been over the course of the 20th uh, century. Tom Gunn asks, why does the world have only one Elon Musk? Now, there are many facets to the question. Definitely the world has more than one person that would be capable of doing things or thinking the way that Elon Musk is thinking and doing. And one of the reasons why they are not doing the things that Elon Musk is, is because potentially they are living under different circumstances. They are more limited uh, by their uh, birthplace, by their upbringing, or by their luck. 
And definitely the availability uh, of technology and the availability of uh, prosperous uh, communities should make it possible for more and more people to be ambitious like him. And then the question is, how many are um, able to deal with uncertainty and risk to the degree that Elon Musk is and apply first principles thinking in order to disrupt existing models, both technological and business-wise, and to be able to think ahead 10, 20 years and then backcasting to decide what needs to be done today in order for that 20-year plan to be realized. So definitely we need a school of Elon Musk type of thinking. And I'm sure there are many uh, pockets of this kind of thinking that already exists and, and it should be nurtured, it should be supported, it should be cultivated in order to generate more than one Elon Musk, because we need many more. Um, a, none of the solutions that we have are um, inevitable, even though Kevin Kelly would disagree with me. Uh, maybe the outcomes are, are inevitable, but only if we are, are around to realize them. If humanity goes extinct, at least for the moment, AIs are not advanced enough to be able to do things without us. Um, and to uh, finish, Rebecca uh, is asking if we are in charge of our own evolution. Oh, absolutely. Of course we are. Um, many of us, I am sure one of them, would have died if uh, we left things to biology a long time ago. And uh, the way that we are now intervening in the capabilities of humans is many orders of magnitude faster than what biology would be able to produce by itself. And as Kevin said, evolution is evolving. So part of the rules of the evolution today is our ability to be more aware and more uh, moral than nature by not cruelly and deterministically eliminating all of the individuals that don't fit in the schemes of the current worldview. Um, contrary to nature that is happy of uh, killing billions of individuals and uh, uh, exterminating uh, millions of species, um, human-driven evolution is much more humane and should aim to increase this degree of uh, acceptance and tolerance and, and inclusivity, which enriches the variety and the possible solutions that we apply. And superintelligence, uh, Rebecca, 
uh, already exists in many different ways. Uh, a, a very simple handheld calculator is super intelligent in its own tasks compared to me. The ability to to um, combine different kinds of intelligences, of course, uh, is what uh, also matters. And we are starting to do that more and more. Uh, already, uh, Google has algorithms that are able to learn how to play not just one game, but many different games. And uh, now the next task is to be able to transfer a trained neural networks learning to a new task. So the ability for our AIs uh, to learn how to learn is improving. That is why I call AI a jolting technology. The rate of innovation is increasing. And to go back to Elon Musk, uh, he exactly said that. He said, the goals of Tesla and SpaceX will not be reached with a constant rate of innovation. Uh, those companies need to increase the rate of innovation. Only then they will be able to uh, bring transportation to sustainable uh, uh, energy and to make humanity into a multi-planetary species. So thank you all for um, the uh, wonderful questions and uh, thanks again for Kevin and Khalid uh, for being with us. Um, see you at uh, the next uh, episode of uh, Searching for the Question Live. Uh, you are uh, welcome to um, become a sponsor, uh, a fan, a benefactor uh, on uh, the uh, Patreon page on patreon.com at uh, slash David Orban. Uh, and uh, see you uh, next time on Searching for the Question Live.